Hey, Happy New Year, everyone. It is the first Sunday of 2021. So glad that you're joining us online today. Now, if you've been part of our church for a few years, you might know that your pastor loves and believes in the promise of, well, of every new year. I, despite my advanced age, which I was made keenly aware of on New Year's Eve as I watched Dick Clark's rockin' New Year's Eve special like I do every, every year, and it, it occurred to me that not one musical guest on that show likely had any idea who Dick Clark was, which made perfect symbolic sense as in turn I did not know who one of the musical guests on that show was. Nevertheless, I have not grown tired or cynical in believing in the promise of a fresh start for the new year or in the power of resolutions for change. In my mind, God could have created randomness in regards to time and season, but instead he didn't. I mean, think about it, our journey through four seasons lasts 365 and one quarter days each year, and then, well, we started all over again, one more lap around the sun. I think that journey by its very nature, it, well, it lends itself to reflection and, and then to renewal and rebirth. And so this first Sunday every year, I, I like to at least personally, and then maybe as a church, kind of take, take stock of where I've been, where we've been, and where I'm going, and where we're going. I hope you do that too. I think Socrates put it best when he stated that the unexamined life is not worth living. And so this year, this week, as I was examining our sheer journey of 2020, our story started seeming eerily familiar to me like it was an old story I had heard somewhere before. Never before, at least that I can remember, have we as a people shared one communal cry. This New Year's Eve, like never before, here's what we heard from everyone. 2020 stunk, never bring it up again, let's get on to 2021. But the focus, it seems, for so many of us is actually not to get on with 2021. I actually heard very few people looking forward to 2021 and all of its new opportunities that it would bring. But instead, and I heard it everywhere, we want 2021 to be more like, well, 2019 or 2018. We want in 2021 not to go forward for what it has, but to go backwards to, quote, be normal again. And look, I get that too, right? I mean, I love normal. I want to go back to crowded restaurants, sporting events, concerts, church services. It's just that I've never heard so much unanimity in anything before. It's almost like all the people had one shared belief. We don't want to go forward into what 2021 has for us, for what God has for us there. We want to go back to the way things were, which is so funny in many ways. Every New Year's Eve before this one, everybody's been excited about what the New Year holds because they wanted what the New Year promised. They wanted change from the old. This year, we just want to go back to what we had. Now, some of you might hear this and know where I as a pastor might be going, but this unanimous communal cry of go back to where we've been and, and what we had and not forward into promise it's not something new. In fact, it's as old as recorded history. And it's at the root, it's the cause of so many people missing out on God's promise and purpose for their lives. You might be familiar with how the story begins. God made a promise to a man named Abraham from a city called Ur. It's recorded in the first book of the Bible, this book of origins called Genesis. 
Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all people on earth will be blessed through you. Now guys, you might remember as we looked at that in our Christmas series over the last couple of weeks, this promise made to Abraham is actually the beginning of our Christmas story. But it was a long, strange, and in many ways unnecessary trip from Ur to Bethlehem. Abraham, if you'll go and leave behind your country, your people, and your father's household, Abraham, if you will, in a sense, um, leave what you know and, and hold dear. If you'll, if you'll leave behind the things that currently give your life meaning and comfort and security. Abraham, I have something better for you. It's a promise. In fact, God got even more specific in regards to that promise to Abraham. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. He took his nephew named Lot and his wife Sarah with him, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. Now guys, if you've ever heard of the term the promised land, this is where that term comes from. God promises to Abraham's offspring a land, a promised land, later which would be described because of, of its nature and its beauty as a land overflowing with milk and honey. Now, as we've recounted over these last few weeks in the Christmas story, for a very long time, the promises of God, because of the circumstances of Abraham's offspring, seemed, well, to put it mildly, long in coming. I mean, sure, they became a nation known as Israel, but they were far from great. They were a nation of brutalized slaves in Egypt, forced for centuries to produce bricks under the hot Egyptian sun in order to build supply cities for the Pharaoh. After 400 years of brick making, many of you know the story, God calls Moses, not unlike he did Abraham, to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt back to this ancient promised land. Most of you know that God used a series of plagues to convince Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. He parts the Red Sea for them to allow safe passage. He gives Moses a new covenant centered on the law, which includes what would become known as the Ten Commandments. And God promises in that covenant that if they would obey his commands, that he would bless them. They could count on it. And then he tells them, go now and take the land that God has promised to you. Well, in preparation, Moses, with God's approval, sends out 12 spies, one for each of the 12 tribes in Israel, to go and check out that land that was promised and to return with some of the fruit from Canaan. And they come back with the fruit and two reports. One is indeed that the land God has promised them is all that had been promised to them. It is truly a land overflowing with milk and honey. The second report is this. According to 10 of the 12 of them, it's also a land well out of their reach. The people there are too numerous, their size is too large, their army's too vast, their walls too fortified. Now, stick with me here. The, the land was promised to them by God. It was God who was going to go with them, who would protect them, who would go before them. It was God who would keep his promise. 
but it was God's people who instead of believing in the promise that God had for them, decided to turn back. Here's what's amazing. What should have been an 11-day journey into the promised land becomes a 40-year walk in the wilderness with an all-too-common cry. It was first heard in, in the Exodus. Quote, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the desert to die? What have you done to, bring, to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. In fact, in the Torah, 14 different times, the people grumble against Moses and God. The people don't want to go into the land of promise. They want to go back to slavery in Egypt. They want to go back to the idols of perceived safety, security, and comfort, even if it meant returning to the brutality of slavery. Instead of, in a sense, trusting God for the promises of the future, trusting God to be faithful to his promises to them, as soon as an obstacle begins to arise to the promise of a better tomorrow, what do they do? They long to go back to what they had, to the captivity of yesterday. Guys, isn't it amazing how obstacles, problems, perceived fears in our present can make us believe lies about and over-romanticize our past? You see, this story of the spies coming back and convincing the Israelites to turn back to the desert and away from the promised land because there were giants in the land, it's at the heart of a little sign that my wife put up in our house for the kids to see. I, I see it almost every day. It reads, don't tell your God that you have a big problem. Tell your problem that you have a big God. Not just a platitude, rooted in historical truth. And so anyway, why do I tell you all this this first Sunday of 2021? Well, it's because I said earlier, this unanimous cry by all of the people of let's go back and not forward of not trusting God and his promises for you for the new year, in a sense, but instead longing to go back to our over-romanticized visions of how great our yesteryears were, it has all the makings of this all-too-familiar story. And I can't help but wonder if we're on the verge of repeating a very similar mistake, taking what could have been a, a very short 11-day walk through the desert of 2020 and turning it into, for, for many of us, a 40-year wandering off into the wilderness. Which is why Moses' advice to his people struck such a chord with me this year and, and why I want to share it with you. I, I shared it with my family and my kids as, as midnight struck on New Year's Eve. The 40 years of wandering have now gone by. The generation that had refused to enter the promised land has all passed away in their wandering, and, and Moses, shortly to die himself, he stands before this new generation who now readies themselves to enter the promised land, and he reminds them of their history, how unfaithful their fathers had been to God, and yet how God had remained so faithful to them. And he says this, be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things that your eyes have seen or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. 
Teach them to your children and to their children after them. Gosh, I love that verse. Moses, in some, some sense, very real final advice to a people who stood on the edge of promise, but whom had just journeyed through a very, very difficult season. A people who sound a lot like us this New Year's. He says, don't forget what your eyes have seen. Don't let the lessons fade from your heart and make sure you teach them to your children. Well, that seems like pretty good advice to me this first Sunday of a new year full of promise. Guys, don't forget what your eyes have just seen. Don't let the lessons fade from your heart and make sure that you teach them to your children. And, and so I don't know how you've spent the last few days of 2020, but this is how I've spent mine. And I, I want to, this morning, encourage you to do the same thing. What have your eyes seen? Here's what mine have in, in this last year of desert wandering and the lessons that I don't want to fade from my heart. Here are the things that I want my children to know. First, so many of the things that I thought were, were just rock solid that could be counted on. Well. 2020 taught me that they, they turned out to be very, very shaky. All of it was like a little thin veneer of oak making a pressboard table look stable or beautiful or valuable. Specifically, what am I talking about? Well, things like jobs and savings and life plans and my health. All these things that, look, if I'm honest, I'm a lot like you. These things provide for me like they do for you, a sense of security and purpose and identity. And yet, like you back in March and April, things I thought could never happen, happened. I mean, I would have sworn none of these things could ever take place. But within a few days, I became the pastor of a church that was no longer going to meet. My wife was the school nurse for a school that was now closed. My life savings, which it now looked like I was going to need to rely on, was decimated. All that time doing cardio at the gym looked like it wasn't going to be able to keep me healthy. And the plan that I had so carefully laid out for the rest of my time in ministry and retirement, well, it all went out the window, like in a couple of days. And then... I mean, let's remember back together. Then to me, it got even more profound, this unraveling. As, as spring turned to summer, violence began to fill the streets. The governmental and authority structures that I once assumed could never be shaken suddenly looked very wobbly. And even the country that I relied on and, and in some sense found my identity in the United States of America, well, it seemed, and if I'm truthful, it still seems, a lot less than united. For me, there was a real sense of what I once thought was rock solid. Well, it turned out it was all pretty flimsy, like held together with gum and, and tape, which is why at one level it's kind of funny how we all want to go back to these days of innocently believing or maybe ignorantly believing, because ignorance is bliss, right? that all of these very shaky things which provide for us or will provide for us security and identity and comfort. 
Guys, here's what my eyes saw last year, what my, art, my heart felt last year. Here's what I want my kids to know. It's that these things, even these things that seem so certain in life, things that we draw our, our identity and security from, they are far from certain. Sure, they may seem that way. Many days, most days, they'll appear that way. Everyone will tell you that they're rock solid. But here's what my eyes have seen. They're not. Don't trust them. And don't long to go back to the days of trusting them again. Because, and here's the why. If these things were the ultimate things for me, the ultimate place where I got my comfort, my peace, my identity, my security from, well, I think I would have been in big, big trouble last year. See, what my eyes saw in 2020, what my heart experienced in 2020, was that when it all seemingly went away, even though it was only for a little bit, even in its worst moments, I was still okay. I was still standing. I, I wasn't broken. I wasn't defeated. I actually remember a conscious thought I had back in April when things seemed to be at their worst, when the future seemed all but certain. I remember going on a walk one day and thinking, it's all unwound, but I'm okay. Yeah, I mean, you know, look, I remember thinking this. Retirement seems like a pipe dream now. Del Boca Vista phase two, probably not going to happen for me but I'm okay. And, and guys, I think the reason why, as I reflected on it this week, was that while all these things for me were really, really important things, honestly, too important, and they're really, really good things, they were, and, and I didn't know this till this year, but here's what I learned, they were not for me ultimate things. Sure, I, I trusted in them and I enjoyed them, but when they all went away, <laughs> I was surprised. I was still okay. Because the one thing that didn't change or move or wobble was my one ultimate thing, God. The writer of Hebrews put it this way, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. All of the good things, it turned out, changed, but the ultimate thing was the only thing that held for me. And as a result, I was okay. I, I, I hope that your eyes saw those same things and that your heart felt those same things too. And, and so that's what I don't want to forget. That's what I want my children to know, which not coincidentally is exactly what Moses wanted the people of God to know as they stood on the precipice of a new promised land. He went on, he said, therefore, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of, a sh a, an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman, or like any animal on earth, or any bird that flies in the air, or like any creature that moves along the ground, or any fish in the waters below, and when you look up to the sky and see the sun, the moon, and all the stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed, this is so good, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshiping the thing that the Lord your God has apportioned to all the nations under heaven. But as for you, the Lord took you and brought you out of the iron smelting furnace, out of Egypt to be the people of his inheritance. 
as you now are. Moses, as his people stood ready to enter the promised land, he wants them to remember this one thing. When you get there to this land flowing with milk and honey, there's one thing that in this land of promise you must never do. There is one mistake that you must never make again. This is the one thing that can steal from you the promises of God for your life. Don't make idols. Don't make of created things ultimate things. Remember what your eyes saw. They're all shams. You see, we, we read this and, and we tend to think of idols in ancient terms. It's the golden calf or the, the totem pole. But that's not what is at the heart of idolatry. At the heart of idolatry is taking good things, created things, and making them your ultimate thing. An idol is anything more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life, or identity. And for many of us, 2020, if it has done anything good, it is revealed to each of us, our idols, the things that compete with God to be our ultimate thing. What my eyes saw in 2020 is, I really like safety, comfort, security, and health. Tim Keller, in his great book, Counterfeit Gods, The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power, and The Only Hope That that matters. He defines idols so profoundly. He writes that an idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you only what God can give you, anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, you would think your life would be hardly worth living. You see, our idols are the things that we say, if I have that, then I'm gonna feel like my life has meaning, then I'll know that I have value, I'll, I'll feel significant, I'll feel secure. You know what idols do? Idols give you a false sense of being in control, but paradoxically, they control us since we feel like we must have them or life is meaningless. Here's what we know to be true. Whatever controls us is our Lord. We become much like ancient Israel, it's slave. And we, like ancient Israel, can want to go back. See, think about it. The, the person who seeks power is controlled by power. The, the person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We don't control ourselves. We're controlled by whatever it is that we've made the Lord of our lives, our ultimate thing. One of the most famous commencement speeches ever given was by David Foster Wallace, an award-winning, best-selling, postmodern novelist. A few years before he ended his own life, he, he gave a now famous commencement speech at Kenyon College. He, he said these poignant and true words about our struggle with our idols, and, and I, think, <laughs> I think maybe he was looking into his own heart. Here's what he wrote. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you'll always feel ugly. 
And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they, your surviving family, finally grieve you. Worship power, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid and you'll, you'll need even more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They're default settings. So profound. You see, this was the problem at the heart of Israel's 40 years of wandering. It was their, idolatry was their default setting like it is ours. Comfort, safety, security, it was their idols as it is ours. And at least relative to the giants in the promised land, it seemed like captivity in Egypt would get them those things. And I can't help but wonder, as, as we stand together on the edge of, of the promise of a new year, if we at deep levels, if we just want to return to the idols of our past years and and set ourselves off wandering all over again. Guys, do not forget what your eyes have seen this year because all of these idols have been exposed for us. They're fakes, they're phonies, they're frauds. There is only one place. There is only room for one thing. And this year has taught us that there is only one place where we can find what we're looking for. Peace and purpose, comfort, identity, security. There is only one who can truly protect and heal you. Tim Keller put it this way, the only way to free ourselves from the destructive influence of counterfeit gods is to turn back to the true one, the living God. He's the only one who, if you'll find him, can truly fulfill you, and if you fail him, can truly forgive you. Thomas Chalmers wrote a a very famous sermon entitled, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Here's how he began. He said, there are two ways in which a practical moralist may attempt to displace from the human heart its love of the world. One is by demonstration of the world's vanity, so as that the heart shall be prevailed upon simply to withdraw its regard from an object that's no longer worthy of it. See, I think this is what we've seen, our eyes have seen in 2020. Or the second is by setting forth before them another object, even God, as more worthy of its attachment, so as that the heart shall be prevailed upon not to resign an old affection, which shall have nothing to succeed it, but to exchange an old affection for a new one. Moses would go on to encourage his people to do exactly this. In light of what their eyes had seen, in knowing that their greatest issue was likely to be idolatry in the land of promise, Moses would go on to give them what became known as the Shema. He did it in hopes of replacing their propensity to pursue lesser gods. He wanted to give them, his people, a new affection. And this is my desire for you this New Year's weekend. The prayer that he gave them, the Shema, well, these words, they became the holiest of all of the holy words of all Hebrew scripture. This was the central text of all of Israel. The Israelites believed that wisdom began right here. So here's what Moses wrote. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They would need to know that as they entered Canaan. 
because there it was a land of many gods. And what Moses was saying to them and what he's saying to us is there are not many gods. There's not a sun god, a rain god. There's not a god of prosperity. There's not a god of peace or security or health. There is one all-powerful God in charge of all of these things. Israel, drop your idols. And love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. Moses says this truth is so important that these commandments that I've given you today are to be on your hearts, impress them on your children, talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on your door frames of your houses and on your gates. Every devout Jewish person, particularly the men, they would recite the Shema twice a day. This wouldn't have included Jesus. First thing in the morning, the Jewish man would put on a prayer shawl and he'd place on his, box, uh, his body these little boxes with commandments written on them, just as the Shema required. They'd strap them to their arms, they'd bind them to their foreheads as a way of saying, God, may my hands do your work, not foolish things. May my mind think your thoughts, not foolish thoughts. Then they would recite these words. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Shema, Shema was so important to the people of Israel that if you were on the road and you were saying Shema and a friend walked past, you were not to interrupt the Shema by greeting that friend. Saying Shema, that was the ultimate expression of faith. It was traditional for Jews to say the Shema as their last, their dying words, and for parents to teach their children to say it before they went to sleep at night. And the Shema is what I'm going to leave you with as a tool as you enter the promised land of 2021. Church, don't long for the past days of our idolatry, really our captivity, where we look to create things for our security and our purpose and an identity, but instead, don't forget what your eyes have seen, how flimsy those things really are. After seeing what we've seen together, let's heed Moses' great warning, be careful. Watch yourselves closely so don't you, forget, you don't forget the things your eyes have seen or let them fade from your heart. And as long as you live, teach them to your children and their children after them. This new year, as we stand at the door of the promise of 2021, can I ask you to incorporate this great prayer as your prayer, as your marching orders, as your theme for 2021? What do I mean? I mean, write it down somewhere. Look, you don't have to put it on a box on, on a prayer shawl, but... You could post it on your fridge, on the steering wheel of your car, on the mirror in your bathroom. Write this in your kid's lunchbox as a note. Teach it to them at night. Pray it with them right before they go to sleep. Every day before each of you head out, remind one another. You know before you go out there into the land of idolatry, I want you to remember one thing. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's really big. He's completely in charge. He is no thin veneer. He's not wobbly or easily shaken. He is a rock. He is our rock. Unchanging, immutable, a force and a power that cannot be stopped or thwarted, and yet he is for us. He is love. And in realizing that, you should love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. Here is what I know, 2021 is a year of promise. 
but so was 2020. And here's why, because God, our ultimate thing, God does not change. What we have to fear as we enter into a new year is, is our own desire to return to our own Egypts. Church, don't do that. Remember what your eyes saw. Don't go back. Go forward into the promises that God has for you. And as you do, daily remind yourself and your children and their children of what we all went through and what we all discovered together. In many ways, it was a once-in-a-lifetime chance to see the thin veneer of all of these fake idols. We have a God. He is the one true God. He is the only thing that never grows faint, tired, or old. And if we would put him first, if we would order our loves correctly, then nothing, 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 2020 has taught us, nothing can shake us from the plans and the promises of the future that God has for you. Happy New Year's, Menham Hills Community Church. Go forward now in hope. Don't long for yesterday. Instead, remember what you've seen. And this year, more than any other year, this year put God first. And I'll be right here with you, encouraging you along the way. I'm gonna need you to encourage me along the way. And together, pray the Shema, write it down, say it out loud every day. Live that way, remember. And I'll see you right back here next Sunday.